Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. In this episode, I'll be reading The Winter's Tale, King Lear, and Twelfth Night from William Shakespeare and E. Nesbitt's Beautiful Stories from Shakespeare. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Story One The Winter's Tale Leontes was the king of Sicily, and his dearest friend, Polixenes, king of Bohemia. They had been brought up together, and only separated when they reached man's estate, and each had to go and rule over his kingdom. After many years, when each was married and had a son, Piloxenes came to stay with Leontes in Sicily. Leontes was a violent-tempered man, and rather silly, and he took it into his stupid head that his wife, Hermione, liked Polixenes better than she did him, her own husband. When once he had got this into his head, nothing could put it out, and he ordered one of his lords, Camillo, to put a poison in Polixenes's wine. Camillo tried to dissuade him from this wicked action, but finding he was not to be moved, pretended to consent. He then told Polixenes what was proposed against him, and they fled from the court of Sicily that night and returned to Bohemia where Camillo lived on as Polixenes's friend and counsellor. Leontes threw the queen into prison, and her son, the heir to the throne, died of sorrow to see his mother so unjustly and cruelly treated. While the queen was in prison, She had a little baby, and a friend of hers, named Paulina, had the baby dressed in its best, and took it 
to show the king, thinking that the sight of his helpless little daughter would soften his heart towards his dear queen, who had never done him any wrong, and who loved him a great deal more than he deserved. But the king would not look at the baby, and ordered Paulina's husband to take it away in a ship, and leave it in the most desert and dreadful place he could find, which Paulina's husband, very much against his will, was obliged to do. Then the poor queen was brought up to be tried for treason in preferring Polixenes to her king. But really she had never thought of anyone except Leontes, her husband. Leontes had sent some messengers to ask the god, Apollo, whether he was not right in his cruel thoughts of the queen. But he had not patience to wait till they came back, and so it happened that they arrived in the middle of the trial. The oracle said, Hermione is innocent, Polixenes blameless, Camillo a true subject, Leontes a jealous tyrant, and the king shall live without an heir, if that which is lost be not found. Then a man came and told them that the little prince was dead. The poor queen, hearing this, fell down in a fit, and then the king saw how wicked and wrong he had been. He ordered Paulina and the ladies who were with the queen to take her away and try to restore her. But Paulina came back in a few moments, and told the king that Hermione was dead. Now Leontes's eyes were at last opened to his folly. His queen was dead, and the little daughter who might have been a comfort to him had been sent away to be prey of wolves and kites. Life had nothing left for him now. He gave himself up to grief and passed in many sad years of prayer and remorse. The baby princess was left on the sea coast of Bohemia, the very kingdom where Polixenes reigned. Paulina's husband 
never went home to tell Leontes where he had left the baby, for as he was going back to the ship, he met a bear and was torn to pieces, so there was an end of him. But the poor deserted little baby was found by a shepherd. She was richly dressed, and had with her some jewels, and a paper was pinned to her cloak, saying that her name was Perdita, and that she came of noble parents. The shepherd, being a kind-hearted man, took home the little baby to his wife, and they brought it up as their own child. She had no more teaching than a shepherd's child generally has, but she inherited from her royal mother many graces and charms, so that she was quite different from the other maidens in the village where she lived. One day, Prince Florizel, the son of the good king of Bohemia, was bunting near the shepherd's house and saw Perdita, now grown up to a charming woman. He made friends with the shepherd, not telling him that he was the prince, but saying his name was Doricles, and that he was a private gentleman, and then, being deeply in love with the pretty Perdita, he came almost daily to see her. The king could not understand what it was that took his son nearly every day from home, so he set people to watch him, and then found out that the heir of the king of Bohemia was in love with Perdita, the pretty shepherd girl. Polixenes, wishing to see whether this was true, disguised himself and went with the faithful Camillo, in disguise too, to the old shepherd's house. They arrived at the feast of the sheep-shearing, and, though strangers, they were made very welcome. There was dancing going on, and a peddler was selling ribbons and lace and gloves, which the young men bought for their sweethearts. Florizel and Perdita, however, were taking no part in this gay scene, but sat quietly together talking. The king noticed the charming manners and great beauty of Perdita, never guessing 
that she was the daughter of his old friend, Leontes. He said to Camillo, This is the prettiest low-born lass that ever ran on the green sward. Nothing she does or seems but smacks of something greater than herself. Too noble for this place. And Camillo answered, In truth, she is the queen of curds and cream. But when Florizel, who did not recognize his father, called upon the strangers to witness his betrothal with the pretty shepherdess, the king made himself known and forbade the marriage, adding that if ever she saw Florizel again, he would kill her and her old father, the shepherd. And with that, he left them. But Camillo remained behind, for he was charmed with Perdita and wished to befriend her. Camillo had long known how sorry Leontes was for that foolish madness of his, and he longed to go back to Sicily to see his old master. He now proposed that the young people should go there and claim the protection of Leontes. So they went, and the shepherd went with them, taking Perdita's jewels, her baby clothes, and the paper he had found pinned to her cloak. Leontes received them with great kindness. He was very polite to Prince Fliortes, but all his looks were for Perdita. He saw how much she was like Queen Hermione, and said again and again, Such a sweet creature my daughter might have been if I had not cruelly sent her from me. When the old shepherd heard that the king had lost a baby girl, who had been left upon the coast of Bohemia, he felt sure that Perdita, the child he had reared, must be the king's daughter. And when he told his tale and showed the jewels and the paper, the king perceived that Perdita was indeed his lost child. He welcomed her with joy and rewarded the good shepherd. Polixenes had hastened after his son to prevent his marriage with Perdita. But when he found that she was the daughter of his old friend, 
he was only too glad to give his consent. Yet Leontes could not be happy. He remembered how his fair queen, who should have been at his side to share his joy in his daughter's happiness, was dead through his unkindness, and he could say nothing for a long time but, O oh, thy mother, thy mother, and ask forgiveness of the king of Bohemia, and then kiss his daughter again, and then Prince Florizel, and then thank the old shepherd for all his goodness. Then Paulina, who had been high all these years in the king's favour, because of her kindness to the dead queen Hermione, said, I have a statue made in the likeness of the dead queen, a piece many years in doing, and performed by the rare Italian master, Giulio Romano. I keep it in a private house apart, and there, ever since you lost your queen, I have gone twice or thrice a day. Will it please your majesty to go and see the statue? So Leontes and Polixenes, and Florizel and Perdita, with Camillo and their attendants, went to Paulina's house, where there was a heavy purple curtain screening off an alcove, and Paulina, with her hand on the curtain, said, She was peerless when she was alive, and I do believe that her dead likeness excels whatever yet you have looked upon, or that the hand of man hath done. Therefore I keep it lonely, apart. But here it is, behold, and say, tis well. And with that, she drew back the curtain and showed them the statue. The king gazed and gazed on the beautiful statue of his dead wife, but said nothing. I like your silence, said Paulina. It the more shows off your wonder. But speak. Is it not like her? It is almost herself, said the king. And yet, Paulina, Hermione was not so much wrinkled. Nothing so old as this seems. Oh, not by much, said Polixenes. How? 
said Paulina. That is the cleverness of the carver, who shows her to us as she would have been had she still lived till now. And still, Leontes looked at the statue and could not take his eyes away. If I had known, said Paulina, that this poor image would have stirred your grief and love, I would not have shown it to you. But he also answered, Do not draw the curtain. No, you must not look any longer, said Paulina, or you will think it moves. Let be, let be, said the king. Would you not think it breath? I will draw the curtain, said Paulina. You will think it lives presently. Ah, sweet Paulina, said Leontes, make me to think so twenty years together. If you can bear it, said Paulina, I can make the statue move, make it come down and take you by the hand. Only you would think it was by wicked magic. Whatever you can make her do, I am consent to look on, said the king. And then, all folks there admiring and beholding, the statue moved from its pedestal and came down the steps and put its arms round the king's neck, and he held her face and kissed her many times, for this was no statue, but the real living queen Hermione herself. She had lived hidden by Paulina's kindness all these years, and would not discover herself to her husband, though she knew he had repented, because she could not quite forgive him till she knew what had become of her little baby. Now that Perdita was found, she forgave her husband everything, and it was like a new and beautiful marriage to them, to be together once more. Florizel and Perdita were married and lived long and happily. To Leontes his many years of suffering were well paid for in the moment when, after long grief and pain, he felt the arms of his true love around him once again. Story 2 King Lear 
King Lear was old and tired. He was aweary of the business of his kingdom, and wished only to end his days quietly near his three daughters. Two of his daughters were married to the Dukes of Albany and Cornwall, and the Duke of Burgundy and the King of France were both suitors for the hand of Cordelia, his youngest daughter. Lear called his three daughters together and told them that he proposed to divide his kingdom between them. But first, said he, I should like to know how much you love me. Gonoril, who was really a very wicked woman, and did not love her far more than words could say, she loved him dearer than eyesight, space or liberty, more than life, grace, health, beauty and honour. I love you as much as my sister and more, professed Regan, since I care for nothing but my father's love. Lear was very much pleased with Regan's profession, and turned to his youngest daughter, Cordelia. Now, our joy, though last not least, he said, the best part of my kingdom have I kept for you. What can you say? Nothing, my lord, answered Cordelia. Nothing can come of nothing. Speak again, said the king. And Cordelia answered, I love your majesty according to my duty. No more, no less. And this she said, because she was disgusted with the way in which her sisters professed love, when really they had not even a right sense of duty to their old father. I am your daughter, she went on, and you have brought me up and loved me, and I return those duties back as are right and fit, obey you, love you, and most honour you. Lear, who loved Cordelia best, had wished her to make more extravagant professions of love than her sisters. Go, he said, be forever a stranger to my heart and me. The Earl of Kent, one of Lear's favourite courtiers and captains, 
tried to say a word for Cordelia's sake, but Lear would not listen. He divided the kingdom between Goneril and Regan, and told them that he should only keep a hundred knights at arms, and would live with his daughters by turns. When the Duke of Burgundy knew that Cordelia would not have a share of the kingdom, he gave up his courtship of her. But the King of France was wiser, and said, Thy dowerless daughter, King, is queen of us, of ours, and of fair France. Take her, take her, said the king, for I will never see that face of hers again. So Cordelia became queen of France, and the Earl of Kent, for having ventured to take her part, was banished from the kingdom. The king now went to stay with his daughter, Gonorreal, who had got everything from her father that he had to give, and now began to grudge even the hundred nights that he had reserved for himself. She was harsh and undutiful to him, and her servants either refused to obey his orders, or pretended that they did not hear them. Now the Earl of Kent, when he was banished, made as though he would go into another country, but instead he came back in disguise of a serving man, and took service with the king. The king had now two friends, the Earl of Kent, whom he only knew as his servant, and his fool, who was faithful to him. Gonorreal told her father plainly, that his knights only served to fill her court with riot and feasting, and so she begged him only to keep a few old men about him, such as himself. My train are men who know all parts of duty, said Lear. Gonorreal, I will not trouble you further, yet I have left another daughter. And his horse being saddled, he set out with his followers for the castle of Regan. But she, who had formerly outdone her sister in professions of attachment to the king, now seemed to outdo her in undutiful conduct, saying that fifty knights were too many to wait on him, 
and Gonorrheal, who had hurried thither to prevent Regan showing any kindness to the king, said five were too many, since her servants could wait on him. Then when Lear saw that what they really wanted was to drive him away, he left them. It was a wild and stormy night, and as he wandered about the heath, half mad with misery, and with no companion but his poor fool. But presently his servant, the good Earl of Kent, met him, and at last persuaded him to lie down in a wretched little hovel. At daybreak, the Earl of Kent removed his royal master to Dover, and hurried to the court of France to tell Cordelia what had happened. Cordelia's husband gave her an army, and with it she landed at Dover. Here she found poor King Lear, wandering about in the fields, wearing a crown of nettles and weeds. They brought him back and fed and clothed him, and Cordelia came to him and kissed him. You must bear with me, said Lear, forget and forgive, I am old and foolish. And now he knew at last which of his children it was that loved him best, and who was worthy of his love. Gonorrheal and Regan joined their armies to fight Cordelia's army, and were successful and Cordelia and her father were thrown into prison. Then Gonorrheal's husband, the Duke of Albany, who was a good man and had not known how wicked his wife was, heard the truth of the whole story, and when Gonorrheal found that her husband knew her, for the wicked woman she was, she killed herself, having a little time before given a deadly poison to her sister, Regan, out of a spirit of jealousy. But they had arranged that Cordelia should be hanged in prison, and though the Duke of Albany sent messengers at once, it was too late. The old king came staggering into the tent of the Duke of Albany, carrying the body of his dear daughter, Cordelia, in his arms. And soon after, with words of love for her upon his lips, 
he fell with her still in his arms and died. Story 3 Twelfth Night Orsino, the Duke of Illyria, was deeply in love with a beautiful countess named Olivia. Yet was all his love in vain, for she disdained his suit, and when her brother died, she sent back a messenger from the Duke, bidding him tell his master that for seven years she would not let the very heir behold her face, but that, like a nun, she would walk veiled, and all this for the sake of a dead brother's love, which she would keep fresh and lasting in her sad remembrance. The Duke longed for someone to whom he could tell his sorrow, and repeat over and over again the story of his love. And chance brought him such a companion, for about this time a goodly ship was wrecked on the Illyrian coast, and among those who reached land in safety were the captain and a fair young maiden named Viola, but she was little grateful for being rescued from the perils of the sea, since she feared that her twin brother was drowned, Sebastian, as dear to her as the heart in her bosom, and so like her that, but for the difference in their manner of dress, one could hardly be told from the other. The captain, for her comfort, told her that he had seen her brother bind himself to a strong mast that lived upon the sea, and that thus there was hope that he might be saved. Viola now asked in whose country she was, and learned that the young Duke Orsino ruled there, and was a noble in his nature as in his name. She decided to disguise herself in male attire, and seek for employment with him as a page. In this she succeeded, and now from day to day she had to listen to the story of Orsino's love. At first she sympathised very truly with him, but soon her sympathy grew to love. At last it occurred to Orsino that his hope love suit might prosper better 
if he sent this pretty lad to woo Olivia for him. Viola unwillingly went on his errand, but when she came to the house, Malvolio, Olivia's steward, a vain, officious man, sick, as his mistress told him, of self-love, forbade the messenger admittance. Viola, however, who was now called Cesario, refused to take any denial, and vowed to have speech with the countess. Olivia, hearing how her instructions were defied, and curious to see this daring youth, said, We'll once more hear Orsino's embassy. When Viola was admitted to her presence, and the servants had been sent away, she listened patiently to the reproaches which this bold messenger from the Duke poured upon her, and listening, she fell in love with the supposed Cesario, and when Cesario had gone, Olivia longed to send some love token after him. So, calling Malvolio, she bade him follow the boy. He left this ring behind him, she said, taking one from her finger. Tell him I will none of it. Malvolio did as he was bid, and then Viola, who of course knew perfectly well that she had left no ring behind, saw with a woman's quickness that Olivia loved her. Then she went back to the Duke, very sad at heart for her lover, and for Olivia, and for herself. It was but cold comfort she could give Orsinot, who now sought to ease the pangs of despised love by listening to sweet music, while Cesario stood by his side. Ah, said the Duke to his page that night, you too have been in love. A little answered Viola. What kind of woman is it? he asked. Of your complexion, she answered. What years, I faith, was his next question. To this came the pretty answer. About your years, my lord. Too old, by heaven cried the duke. Let still the woman take an elder than herself. And Viola very meekly said, I think it well, my lord. And by and by, 
Orsinoe begged Cesario once more to visit Olivia and to plead his love suit, but she, thinking to dissuade him, said, If some lady loved you as you love Olivia, Ah, that cannot be, said the duke. But I know, Viola went on, what love woman may have for a man. My father had a daughter loved a man, as it might be, she added, blushing. Perhaps were I a woman, I should love your lordship. And what is her history? he asked. A blank, my lord, Viola answered. She never told her love, but let concealment like a worm in the bud feed on her damask cheek. She pined in thought, and with a green and yellow melancholy she sat, like patience on a monument, smiling at grief. Was not this love indeed? But died thy sister of her love, my boy? The duke asked, and Viola, who had all the time been telling her own love for him in this pretty fashion, said, I am all the daughters my father has, and all the brothers. Sir, shall I go to the lady? To her in haste, said the duke, at once forgetting all about the story and give her this jewel. So Viola went, and this time poor Olivia was unable to hide her love, and openly confessed it with such passionate truth, that Viola left her hastily, saying, Never more will I deplore my master's tears to you, but in vowing this, Viola did not know the tender pity she would feel for others' suffering. So when Olivia, in the violence of her love, sent a messenger, praying Cesario to visit her once more, Cesario had no heart to refuse the request. But after the favours which Olivia bestowed upon this mere page aroused the jealousy of Sir Andrew Orgicheek, a foolish, rejected lover of hers, who at the time was staying at her house with her merry old uncle Sir Toby. This same Sir Toby dearly loved a joke, and knowing Sir Andrew to be an arrant coward, he thought 
that if he could bring off a duel between him and Cesario, there would be rare sport indeed. So he induced Sir Andrew to send a challenge, which he himself took to Cesario. The poor page, in great terror, said, I will return again to the house. I am no fighter. Back you shall not to the house, said Sir Toby, unless you fight me first. And as he looked a very fierce old gentleman, Viola thought it best to wait Sir Andrew's coming and when he at last made his appearance, in a great fright, if the truth had been known, she trembling drew her sword, and Sir Andrew, in like fear, followed her example. Happily for them both, at this moment some officers of the court came on the scene, and stopped the intended duel. Viola gladly made off with what speed she might, while Sir Toby called after her. A very paltry boy, and more a coward than a hare. Now, while these things were happening, Sebastian had escaped all the dangers of the deep, and had landed safely in Illyria, where he determined to make his way to the Duke's court. On his way thither, he passed Olivia's house, just as Viola had left it in such a hurry. And whom should he meet? but Sir Andrew and Sir Thomas. Sir Andrew, mistaking Sebastian for the cowardly Cesario, took his courage in both hands, and walking up to him, struck him, saying, There's for you. Why, there's for you, and there, and there said Sebastian, biting back a great deal harder, and again, and again, till Sir Toby came to the rescue of his friend. Sebastian, however, tore himself free from Sir Toby's clutches, and drawing his sword, would have fought them both but that Olivia herself, having heard of the quarrel, came running in, and with many reproaches sent Sir Toby and his friend away. Then, turning to Sebastian, whom she too thought to be Cesario, she besought him with many a pretty speech, to come into the house with her. Sebastian, half dazed and all delighted with her beauty and grace, 
readily consented, and that very day so great was Olivia's base that they were married before she had discovered that he was not Cesario, or Sebastian was quite certain whether or not he was in a dream. Meanwhile, Orsino, hearing how ill Cesario sped with Olivia, visited her himself, taking Cesario with him. Olivia met them both before her door, and seeing, as she thought, her husband there, reproached him for leaving, while to the duke she said that his suit was as fat and wholesome to her as a howling after music. Still so cruel, said Orsino. Still so constant, she answered. Then, Orsino's anger growing to cruelty, he vowed that to be revenged on her, he would kill Cesario, whom he knew she loved. Come, boy, he said to the page, and Viola, following him as he moved away, said, I, to do you rest, a thousand deaths would die. A great fear took hold on Olivia, and she cried out, Cesario, husband, stay. Her husband? asked the duke angrily. No, my lord, not I, said Viola. Call forth the Holy Father, cried Olivia. And the priest who had married Sebastian and Olivia, coming in, declared Cesario to be the bridegroom. O thou dissembling cub, the duke exclaimed, Farewell, and take her, but go where thou and I henceforth may never meet. At this moment Sir Andrew came up with bleeding crown, complaining that Cesario had broken his head, and Sir Toby's as well. I never hurt you, said Viola, very positively. You drew your sword on me, but I bespoke you fair and hurt you not. Yet, for all her protesting, no one there believed her, but all their thoughts were on a sudden changed to wonder when Sebastian came in. I am sorry, madam, he said to his wife. I have hurt your kinsman. Pardon me, sweet, even for the vows we made each other so late to go. One face, one voice, 
one habit and two persons, cried the duke, looking first at Viola and then at Sebastian. An apple cleft in two, said one who knew Sebastian, is not more twin than these two creatures. Which is Sebastian? I never had a brother, said Sebastian. I had a sister, whom the blind waves and surges have devoured. Were you a woman, he said to Viola, I should let my tears fall upon your cheek and say, Thrice welcome, drowned Viola. Then Viola, rejoicing to see her dead brother alive, confessed that she was indeed his sister, Viola. As she spoke, Orsino felt the pity that is akin to love. Boy, he said, thou never shouldst love woman like to me. And all those sayings will I overswear, Viola replied, and all those swearings keep true. Give me thy hand, Orsino cried in gladness. Thou shalt be my wife and my fancy's queen. Thus was the gentle Viola made happy while Olivia found in Sebastian a constant lover and a good husband, and he in her a true and loving wife.